Welcome to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rotford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It does help others to find it too. And if you have any feedback or questions, they're always welcome. Email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. That's it for now. Let's get started with the show. Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Displeasure podcast. This week we have with us Erin Roman from over in Canada. Hi Erin. Good morning, Laura. Nice. Well, it's morning on my side of the world, so nice to see you. <laughs> so we are four o'clock over here. You're 8 a.m. over there, I believe. So you've probably got your cup of coffee with you and I've got my calms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Winding down for the evening. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time with us today. Um, I'm really excited to hear your story. Um, we've been communicating over Instagram and chatting a little bit about um, the journey that you've recently been through. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your story? Sure. Yeah. So um, in terms of my hip dysplasia, so they found my hip dysplasia when I was three months old. Uh, so my mom was I was home and she had the nurse come in and they were checking my hips and they're like, oh, these are not really in place. So um, I found out later that unfortunately around three months is the cutoff apparently in terms of they find it at birth, they can really do a lot of, of difference in terms of, of reshaping um, because it, the bone growth in that time apparently is, is pretty crucial. You probably know more about that than I would. <laughs> um, but then, so I went through the, the, the stages as a baby of having you know, braces and being in traction and then having a, a cast on. My mom has some really great photos of me looking like a very large baby, just like with a cast from basically my chest all the way down to my toes. Um, but apparently I was happy. Um, I was okay with that as a baby. And then I was okay during my childhood. Um, and then I started to have some issues and some pain in my teens. So I love to run. I love to be really active um, when I was in high school. Um, and I would occasionally feel, I think now looking back, it was a bit of like subluxation, um, the hip kind of, kind of coming out of the socket a little bit. Um, but no doctors would even look at it. Um, even with my history, it was always, I was always told that there was nothing wrong. And um, so for years that happened. So then uh, I moved out to BC because I used to live in the Maritimes. I moved to BC and finally in my twenties, I asked my, the, the pain was just getting worse. So I, I trail, I was a trail runner um, and was fairly active, but just had pain really quite, quite often. Um, and so I finally really advocated to my GP. I knew she worked alongside of an orthopedic surgeon. So I said, hey, do you think I could just get an opinion? So this is when I was 25. Uh, so I first saw an orthopedic surgeon when I was 25. And within 20 seconds of being in his office, he validated what was happening for me, um, looked at my x-rays and said, uh, there's really no cartilage left. You're, there's pretty much bone on bone on the, on the ends of the acetabulum. So that's where your pain's coming from. Um, there's a couple of things we could try, but uh, I really don't want to do any kind of surgery until you're at least 45. <laughs> so 20 years. <laughs> so, um, so I was in tears. I remember being uh, in that appointment because it was the first time that anyone had acknowledged the pain and what was happening. And he saw it right away on the x-rays. And I'd had several x-rays before that. And every x-ray technician had said, normal, normal presentation. There's, there's nothing wrong with these hips. So um, I tried a couple of things with that surgeon, although I was his youngest patient, he was in a very small city. 
Um, and so he tried some hyaluronic acid uh, shots. Um, and so that really didn't do much for me. Um, and then I went to see him a couple of times. Um, and then he said, you know, the only thing I really don't want to do anything surgical with you. The only thing that I could do is, is do steroid injections for the next 10 years. This is probably when I was 35 <laughs> and I managed it for 10 years and I couldn't find any support. Like I couldn't, I didn't know of any physios that could help. I didn't even know physios could help with hip dysplasia and I'm a health professional myself and just couldn't, um, find any support within my community. I live in, I've lived in some pretty small communities though. So, um, that might be part of it. Um, so finally I advocated to see a surgeon in a bigger city center. So in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so I was able to see two different surgeons, um, who said, I said, when, when should I consider surgery? They're like, we'll do surgery whenever you're ready. I'm like, well, what, how do I know <laughs> when I'm ready? And they said, well, when you have more bad days than good days. I'm like, well, I don't really even know at this point. So now I'm 39. Um, I saw them when I was 37 and 38. Um, and I said, I don't really know what a good day is anymore because I just kind of get through. So at that point I was um, walking for 20 minutes was pretty much all that I could do in terms of cardio without um, pain starting in my hips. So then I decided <laughs> the big decision of getting um, a replacement. Um, so they offered me a simultaneous bilateral hip replacement. So I had both done on November uh, 10th, uh, just of 2020. So I'm almost four months post-surgery now, which has been interesting to do it in the time of COVID. Um, and I'm so thankful that I did it and that I did both hips at the same time and that someone saw a potential for um, coming out of the pain and being able to be more active. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at today. I mean, that's incredible. I'm so excited to hear about how it was to go through a bilateral hip replacement, having both done at the same time. We hear lots of people coming on and saying that they've had, you know, one done and then the other done either sort of, you know, months or years down the line. But to hear about that experience for, for bilateral will be really cool. So I'm excited to hear about that. Um, there were a couple of things that you mentioned so that I'd like to go back and sort of pick your brains about, if I may. Please. Um, so you said that you managed the pain um, between age 25 and 35, roughly. Um, and 10 years is quite a quite a big gap um, of time to fill with managing when you, like you said, didn't really feel like you had a lot of support or um, knowledge in what to do. So can I ask, yeah, how did you manage that pain? And where, where did you get the ideas from? What did you do? Yeah, and I don't think I managed it very well, if I'm being <laughs> fully honest. Um, after I found your Instagram, I was like, oh my gosh, there's physios that are actually looking at hip dysplasia and helping hip dysplasia. Um, I think part of it for me was that uh, I kept presenting as normal to a lot of professionals. So, um, and I hid it really well. I think, you know, when you live with chronic pain, you really learn how to hide that pain. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of stigma around that pain, I feel. And even, and some of that I think was self-induced in terms of having hip pain to me was, you know, an older person's issue, not, not a young person's issue. So it wasn't something I really felt comfortable talking about with friends or things. So I managed it by hiding it a lot of the time. Um, and then um, just doing the activities that I could do. I did a lot of yoga, but then even, and then adjusting. Um, so I did a lot of learning in therapeutic yoga, mostly for myself, so that I could 
still do the practice because I did the practice since I was a teenager. Um, and I do think the yoga was really helpful. However, I think that I needed a little bit more knowledge in terms of where um, I was perhaps being a little bit hypermobile with some of those moves that may not have helped. So, um, but yeah, I did, I found it tricky because everything that any group activity that I wanted to go do, I was really hesitant because I was hesitant to share that I had the issue. And then I was hesitant to be in the class and have to do um, modifications for myself, but I got pretty good at doing modifications for myself. Um, but we did, we did a lot of hiking and I managed it just with ibuprofen and Tylenol when I needed it. And that was, that was pretty much all that I used. I tried to stay as active as I could be, um, in the ways that I knew how without extra support, um, but staying outdoors and, and getting in as much activity as I could for as long as I could, but yeah. So you said that you would modify things um, in the ways that you knew how, and you've mentioned the um, the yoga that you were doing to try and allow you to move in a way that would just get you to the next bit of activity that you really wanted to do. You said about the medication that you were using to help um, you again to function in a way that you wanted to, but were there any other modifications that you made? Like, you you know, you've mentioned the sports and activities Um that you really enjoyed like hiking and just lots of team sports and being really active so were there any other modifications that you made um to allow you to do that like resting more or mm -hmm. certain changes of position or you you know choose different activities yeah so my surgeon when I saw him at 25 told me that I needed to stop running um so I stopped running at 25 which was heartbreaking um and so yeah, so that was, I guess, one of my huge modifications and then a lot of resting and then cold and heat. So I used heat quite a lot. Heat worked for me um, just for resting in the evenings. And that's interesting, you know, in, <laughs> when you're in relationships and things like that with another active person and then you need a lot of rest time. But um, so, yeah, so that's that's basically what I used when I needed to rest. I rested. And then if we did, say, like a longer hike, sometimes sometimes it would take me three or four days to recover from that. Um, so that would be, I would just kind of slow down my activity. Um, but I wish now that I had more tools in terms of now that I'm doing my recovery for my surgery, there were so many stretches that I could have been doing. And again, like as a health professional, I don't even know why I didn't even think about that piece of it. Um, I think I was denying it for so long that there was actually something that I could do about it because it felt like every professional I went to was like, there's nothing we can really do for you until you're older. That yeah. was so frustrating. It was so frustrating. So I think when you feel like you're not heard or seen or your pain isn't really heard or seen, that um, that you don't acknowledge it yourself, you start not acknowledging it yourself until it presents itself. And then it's like, okay, rest. And But I wasn't then actively doing anything about it because I didn't feel like there was anyone that could support me in that. Um, now I'm learning better <laughs> about that. But I wish I would have known that back when I was you know, even in my teens, um, I sat in, I watched some of the Zoom calls of one of the hip support groups. Um, oh, you're going to the one this weekend? Yeah, I'm going to go on Sunday. Oh, I'm too. oh nice, nice. <laughs> and I was watching it. I saw all these like young, young women. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that they're getting help now. Um, and that someone is seeing their condition and supporting them now. And they all seem like very active and, you know, wanting to continue with their sports. And um, I was just so glad that there was some support there because there just wasn't for me. It's, it, it is so frustrating when you feel so alone and so isolated with it. And 
you know, fortunately I was a little bit too young to really have that awareness, but I've spoken to so many people that have felt alone in their journeys. And, you know, like I said, the more that we can all speak to each other and create these, you know, support groups and information and awareness, then hopefully the aim is that people won't have to feel like they're alone going through this in the future. So, you know, thank you so much for coming on and being a a part Mm -hmm. of strengthening that message and community and support for other people going forward yeah yeah um so you did mention as well with the level of pain and all the modifications and stuff that you were going through that you started to not really recognize what a good day was um that they were like whether there's more good days than bad but you weren't really sure what a good day was anymore so can you talk me through a little bit about how you felt with that process you know what those days were like you know what were good and bad days for you in comparison to perhaps how you feel now Mm, yeah, great question. Um, so those days and looking back, I think you get so used to it that you're just used to chronic pain and to a level that I would, wasn't really even taking medication for it because I didn't want to take painkillers all the time so that I would, I would decrease my activity. And so one of my big reasons um, for getting the replacement was that I was starting to see the effects of not being able to be active. I think, you know, you don't necessarily see those effects. And sometimes you do when you're really young, but, you know, I was getting up into like my late thirties and I thought like, how am I going to keep going health wise if I can't be active? Um, if I feel like I can't be active. Um, so my usual days included like waking up in pain, um, sitting for a while at my desk was even that had some pain, uh, but usually movement was the, the piece that brought on the pain. So walking, um, going upstairs, even I was having days where I was kind of limping up the stairs. Um, So, but then I I kind of thought, okay, you get in this frame of mind because I had professionals telling me we can't do anything for another, at this point I was thinking, okay, it's going to be another seven years. Uh, So you just kind of brush it aside in a way, or you're like, this is what life is. But I knew it was starting to affect my mental health. I knew it was starting to affect my overall health and well-being and who I was as a person and you know my marriage and and all those things because I was living in this pain body um and I had this moment recently I was on the treadmill and I was feeling like some tightness in my muscles just from rehab just just healing um and I just had this epiphany moment where I thought oh my goodness I've been living in a body for so long that I only knew that the pain was only going to get worse and now I'm living in a body where like this pain is just going to get better And it was such a huge moment for me to realize like, oh, I don't, I got goosebumps listening to you you say that. It's incredible. Yeah. And I think, you know, I experienced a lot of stigma when when I made the choice to um, get the replacement at a young age. I had a lot of older people and even health professionals that we're saying like, oh gosh, like there's a lot of older people that are waiting for a hip replacement. How did you get in so quickly? And, um, you know, you're, you're too young to, to have replacements and like, you're not supposed to have a replacement until you're in your seventies or in your eighties or, and it was just really interesting trying to sort that out once you made this huge decision <laughs> of having the surgery. And then, um, these judgments or these perceptions that, um, it's not a young person's um, surgery that should be available to them. So yeah. can I ask when people mm. were making these kind of comments to you and saying things like, well, you shouldn't be having them. You're so young. Did you feel like you needed to 
justify it? Did you feel like you wanted to educate them? Like, how did you handle those questions and those statements? I did. Um, and I tried to kind of bring some awareness to the fact that um, I can see that that might be the, the route that you've normally seen in terms of replacements, but there are actually some of us that have been kind of living with um, like a disability in terms of not being able to do the movements that we've been wanting to, or like a hidden type of chronic pain that you don't necessarily see um, for our whole lives. And so it might seem like, you know, that's when it's different than a joint wearing out. And I think that that's what's often associated with um, replacements is just that that uh, associate, because that's what I, I don't know the statistics, but I would assume that it's probably, you know, 80 to 90% of the <laughs> replacements are probably, you know, those in their 70s, 60s, 70s or 80s. Um, and that have like technically like quote unquote worn out. Um, so there isn't that same awareness of the use of the surgery for other conditions. And just hip dysplasia in general, I just, most people, and even when I would Google hip dysplasia, it was always like canine, canine related <laughs> that came up. Like there's more websites about hip dysplasia than dogs. True story. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so it just felt like, um, yeah, I'm just, I, I'm just so glad that there's more conversations happening. And I, like, I want to be part of that awareness raising because it's just, it's been so beneficial for me. Um, I started to, when I knew that I was going to have the surgery, I went on Instagram, thank goodness for Instagram some days, but I, I just put like bilateral hip replacement. And then I found just as a hashtag. And I found, I think maybe like 20 people that were kind of posting consistently about that. And then I just wrote them all. <laughs> I wrote them all. And I just said like, hi, <laughs> can, can I just pick your brain? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how it went for you? Because it was so difficult to find especially about bilateral too. A, young people getting hip replacements for hip dysplasia was difficult, but then trying to get information about getting both done was even more rare. So um, yeah, so sorry, I, I went on a tangent. <laughs> it's great, no, please, um, please carry on. So yeah, so I think that it was, um, it was an interesting process of, of um, trying to bring awareness to those that, I, I also had people that said, oh, you're not going to be able to do any activity after the hip replacement. Um, because you don't want to wear it out. And so I'm like, actually, I'm getting it so that I can be more active. Um, and the research has actually really changed in that field. Um, and now I'm exploring that piece about, um, because I would like to get back into running. And I was really inspired by a couple of people like the Bionic Warrior, um, as someone that I've been following on Instagram, just to see um, what's possible after hip replacement. Because again, like, I don't find that there's a lot of resources to tell you even getting back to work, like what that looks like after hip replacement, like being a young person with a joint replacement and how, how to manage it in a way that can um, help the longevity of it, but also like help you have a really active life. Um, so if you know of any <laughs> resources, which you are one, um, but in Canada, really, there's really not anything that I, that I found in terms of, well, there's one program. So Ortho Connect, we have I was set up with this program in BC. I think it's just in BC. Um, we have a osteoarthritis community that an organization that I was set up with before my surgery. But again, I didn't really feel like it really applied to me. All the other people that were in the classes were older um, and most were getting a single knee or hip um, and again, older um, and weren't going back to work. They were retired. Um, so the questions were didn't really quite apply to the things that I had 
questions about in terms of getting back to work and getting back to an active lifestyle. Um, but then I found this one program called Ortho Connect here in BC, where they actually pair you up with someone who's had this, a similar surgery to yours um, before you have your surgery. So you can sign up for it, which I did. And I was paired up with the most, most incredible woman. Um, and she lived just a few hours away from me, um, but she had the surgery about five months before I did. So she was like, she still is <laughs> a really close, like hip buddy of mine. Um, she's the first person I've ever met that understands. We have different stories of where, how we've gotten to where we are, um, but she supported me um, through the whole process um, via texts and emails and phone calls. Um, and she was so supportive and it made me realize how important that piece of just finding someone, other people that understand your story and understand this surgery in, in particular is really, really important. So, I mean, that sounds so similar to the um, program that Sydney is setting up with PAO Buddies. I don't know if you've heard mm. about this yet, um, but she's doing a piece um, on the Hip Splitter Awareness Week 22nd to the 28th of March. Um, so she has a website that is designed exactly for this purpose to try and match people up um, and bring them together with people that they can really relate to because you know like you said it can be difficult to have that understanding from people around you um with you know the age that you know many of us are, are when we have our surgeries and it just doesn't really make a lot of sense to some people so the relief of having somebody to talk to you that's your own age going through a similar thing to you must be an absolutely massive relief so it's been so, so supportive. And of course, we're not exactly alike in every way, um, but it's just having the similarities of the surgery and just having the similarities of needing both done um, was just really, really, really helpful. Yeah. So I really want to hear about how you're doing now. How was the surgery? Ooh. How did it go? And um, let's then start have a, having a chat about your rehab. Yeah, so I, I was pretty nervous about the surgery going into it. So I live on Vancouver Island. And so we traveled over to Vancouver. Um, so that's about five hours away or so. And we went to it's a teaching hospital. It's associated with um, the University of British Columbia. So it was UBC Hospital. Um, and it was fairly seamless, but um, it was during the time of COVID. So it was a little bit unnerving. Our numbers were starting to rise at that time here in BC. Um, but I went in, um, I was pretty nervous in pre-op. Um, I still didn't feel that prepared for what actually was going to happen. I find orthopedics here an interesting field in terms of um, uh, like things weren't, and my hip buddy and I have both said this, we both are in the health field and we just wish that there would have been a little bit more like, this is what your new hip is going to look like. Like here's an actual example um, of what it looks like, but we don't, you don't really get that piece of it. We didn't really get that piece of it with our surgeon. Um, and because it was um, in Vancouver, I'd only actually seen my surgeon over Zoom. I had seen one of his partner surgeons in person the year before. And so we had that in-person um, assessment there, but I saw him over Zoom. And so um, I went in and then, soon enough like I was doing so waking up was definitely um an interesting feeling of like it was definitely I think there's this realization um 
we've been writing a blog myself and my hip buddy for a physiotherapist that we go to um, just around because we want to raise awareness around it. And so we were saying, we think it might be important to know that when you wake up, there is like a slight feeling of, because you're getting both done, a slight feeling of like lower paralysis, like just like that loss of function of both, but that goes away really, really quickly. Um, so I had movement really quickly in both of my legs. Um, I was doing um, stairs on day three Wow. Surgery. Like I was doing bridges in my bed. I think the day after surgery with some help, like using my upper body strength and pulling up, like it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, how quickly they get you moving. I had some great physios at the hospital, uh, who were really supportive. Um, and the hospital was really quiet while I was there, which was helpful as well. Um, and the pain management part for me during it, um, it was actually the side effects of the medication while I was in hospital. That was the roughest part of my whole right. hospital journey. Um, I was being hesitant about the amount of, of um, pain meds that I wanted to take, um, but I still was taking them. Um, but then I ended up having a lot of stomach issues about them, which ended up being actually more complicated. <laughs> than the pain of, of the hip surgery, which was just fascinating because I didn't think about that piece of it. Um, they just gave me a lot of, of medications when I had an empty stomach. Um, so I ended up having like some ulcer type issues in the hospital, pretty strong ulcer type issues in the hospital. Um, didn't think about stomach issues going to hip surgery, but oh, um, why would you? <laughs> yeah. So those things happened. So that was actually like uh, yeah, that was the most challenging part of it. And the, the other pieces of, um, getting moving, um, where, where like, it was really exciting to see how quickly, um, changes in my range of motion were, were happening. So I was in the hospital for, I could have left on day four, but I left on day five. So I stayed five days in the hospital. Uh, I went in on Tuesday and I was out on, on the Saturday. Um, and then I just transferred all the way home which was great. I was able to actually be in the car for like five hours. Um, so all the way home, which was kind of like the, um, it was okay. We, we took some pain meds. I took some pain meds before, and then it was kind of the best choice for us in terms of getting all the way home. And then I got really set up at home in terms of um, really set up in like a comfortable situation and um, did all the modifications that I needed in my house. And then because we live, we live in a townhouse with two floors. So I was doing stairs quite often. Um, and my, I think I was off crutches within a few weeks. I was using a walker for like a week. Um, and then I was on crutches for a couple of weeks and I would kind of bring them out with me on other times just because I was a little bit <laughs> nervous when I was out on my own. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very quick process for that initial getting back to like a functioning ability was, was quite fast in my regard. When you think about what actually happened in the surgery mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and going through both, but I think it was worth, uh, and I think this was one of the things when I was preparing to talk to you today was like one of my learnings was that um, finding the right type of supports in terms of like, there was a few Facebook groups that I was part of that I found, but then there was a lot of fear around getting both done. And I remember posting that about getting both done. Um, and I was a bit nervous to post that. And there were so many people that commented, like, I would never get both done. I couldn't imagine getting both done. That's really a risky surgery. And it, it brought in a lot of fear 
Um, and when I was like searching through, so being careful about, you know, those larger type groups in terms of like keeping it in check in terms of the things that people might comment it. And I think that they meant it in a really supportive way um, because it's so rare that both are done at the same time. But to be honest, I'm so glad I did. Like I have an almost four-year-old and I couldn't imagine going through this like twice. Um, for me, for me, it worked for me. And then I feel like I would have, because I had the same type of pain in both hips, um, I feel like I would have overcompensated with the good hip because I was having so much pain in both um, that I probably would have, I feel like I would have probably created something, um, what's the word for that? Uh, compensations um, for, for that, but so yeah. And um, so obviously it was the right decision for you to have your bilateral um, approach. Um, do you, or were, were they good at asking about the level of support that you had? Because I'm wondering, and I'm curious to know whether if you hadn't have had, you know, a wonderful family situation and supportive situation to go back to, whether they would have still given you the bilateral rather than the single. Mm, and you know what, they didn't really, I don't, they didn't really ask me in depth. They asked me the type of support. Like I remember I filled out a form in terms of the type of support that I had. Um, but I only had, my husband had to go back to work, I think a week after my surgery. And then I had my little guy, um, my in-laws came up for the first week, but then I was on my own during the days doing things, but I was able to cope with it. Like I was able to do it. Um, it was tricky, but um, I found ways of, of, you know, little tricks of how to kind of make it through the day. But after a week of being home, I was actually okay on my own. And I know that isn't the situation for everyone. Um, but I feel like, um, I don't know if having, because I don't know what it's like to have one done. So I'm not really sure what that feels like in terms of how much you rely on your, on your other leg. But when you get both done, they basically, which is kind of interesting, but like there's no resources with it that, that they give you that are particular to having both, to doing bilateral. They just <laughs> give you all this, <laughs> the resources for having one done. And then they say, treat your good leg, like the one that feels a little bit better as your good leg, as your non-operated leg. <laughs> basically so which is kind of strange because you're like well it was still operated on so um okay but there are definitely some things I don't think I would have known how to do unless I had my hip buddy so um such as getting into bed and so she actually like I remember the day that she she's like on zoom and she got her partner to help her to show me over zoom like how she would get into bed because there was I was like googling and trying to find information but um Without her, I don't know if I could have gotten through the whole thing on my own. Um, I really think that she was the one that really helped me. Sorry, it almost makes me emotional because <clears throat> the lack of resources to really support you to get through this type of surgery, like emotionally as well, like the, it's, it's a whole piece of emotionally, spiritually, physically to get through it. Um, they just don't exist in, in, in my search for them. Um, how to get through it and supporting your own mental wellness and understanding what's happening in your body. And I even find now that's a piece that I'm really craving is like, what's happening in my body? Like, what does healing look like? How long do, I had to ask my physio, like, how long do bones take to heal? How long do like, muscles take to heal? Like none of that information, once your restrictions are lifted, 
um, in terms of like what, how can you actually support that healing process in the best way? Um, and for me, that's always tying it back to physiology of like what's actually happening in there. <laughs> but they haven't found any resources to show me what, what that looks like. So. so this friend, would you like to give a little shout out? Yes. Yeah, Janine, Janine Austin. Um, she's just the most wonderful human being and was there for me through it all um, and shared so much of her own journey and supported every piece of mine. She's still supporting every piece of my journey. Um, and now we're working together on some projects to help raise awareness in our communities. So I'm just so appreciative of her whole being and how she um, shared so much of herself and so many tips and tricks and, and senses of calm and uh, brought me back to earth when I wasn't feeling so great um, and just really supported me through the whole, the whole surgery and rehab and pre-surgery. <laughs> the there's, there's a lot of support there and like I said, I'm sure that she probably feels the same way about you as well I'm sure you were a great amount of support um, and resources for each other um so yeah thank you so much for sharing that and I will absolutely be sure to give her a shout out in the description when we release this as well um so the support that you had through her and the support that you had at home allowed you to get through this and come out the other side. You're now four months down the line. How are you getting on now? Are you starting to get back to things that you used to do? Where are you with your rehab now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I'm doing well. I, am, I still have some stiffness. So getting back to work, I went back to work too quickly. Um, at first I thought that I was going to take two weeks off of work. Um, and then I ended up taking uh, what did I take six to eight weeks off of work and that still I don't think was enough um the but I didn't really have any guidance with that so basically the guidance from and my surgeon was really wonderful and and had a really nice bedside manner but again there's it's it's tricky to have that follow-up I had a follow-up with him but then um, it was only two weeks after my surgery that my follow-up happened um and then via zoom as well over zoom yeah. So, um, which has its own limitations too, but just in terms again of like getting back to work. So I couldn't find anything in terms of ways to support myself getting back to work. So I was finding that it was really difficult to stay stagnant, whether that was both standing or sitting um, while I was working. Um, and so my physio explained that that was because there can be some gelling that happens when we're sitting still um, within the, the hip joint. So then I was really stiff getting up. So whenever I would sit through a patient consult um, for like an hour, then I would go to get up and then I would have like quite an extreme limp. So I was trying to figure out for quite a while. I was trying to work some shorter days. I'm still trying to work some shorter days um, so that I'm not so stagnant. And I would go from like standing desk to sitting. I'm sitting on my yoga ball right now so that I find with the yoga ball, <laughs> I find I can like move my hips a little bit more and create a little bit and like my pelvis, I can kind of tilt my pelvis back and forth just to create a little bit of movement in the joint. Um, but those things weren't things that I really, I had to think of those things kind of on my own and with the support of my physio, but uh, my physio has also been through Zoom. So it's been um, great She's and she's wonderful. Um, and that's one thing I think I would advocate for. So I went to a physiotherapist in my own community and she's very well-respected. She's been in the field for 30 years but she's never supported anyone with a bilateral. So um, 
I couldn't find any physios. I asked around the, va the valley where I lived if there were any physios who had ever supported and through physios that knew other physios. And they'd like, they're like, no, that's so rare that we don't know of anybody. So um, I asked my hip buddy, Janine, <laughs> so, who she went to. And then I ended up going to virtually to her physio in Vancouver. And that was really helpful. So I would say, try to find a, a physio that has like, because my other physio was very open that she was like, I think this could work. I think this could be beneficial. And then my other physio was like, nope, you're not quite ready for that yet. Um, and it was just, it was just the experience of having supported some, some other folks with a bilateral. Um, so that's one thing I think that was important for me. Um, and now I'm back to, it's been a little cold here as I'm sure it's been cold over in the UK as well. So um, my physio was really quite nervous about me going out in any snow or ice. So I was really glad that I had a treadmill at home, just like an old used treadmill, um, just to be able to do my physio on that. You're, we're having to get pretty creative during COVID <laughs> in terms of um, how to do PT at home. Um, and that's one thing I'm about to get my first like massages, which um, I'm excited for because I think I just need some manipulation of the muscles in there. So doing pretty well. So I can walk pretty well on the treadmill. Um, I can go for hikes and walks. Um, I did some pretty dynamic Qigong with my staff yesterday. That was great. Some like kicks that I haven't done yet. Like one legged kicks, which is interesting. Um, so yeah, besides some, still some tightness. Uh, especially in my, my quads I'm finding, um, and sometimes in my hamstrings. So there's still some like lots of stretching that that's been going on. And then, um, but interestingly getting, there's an interesting transition. There was an interesting transition for me going from the, like the, the restrictions are so, um, extreme <laughs> when with, with hip replacements that, um, and you get so fearful of moving your body in certain ways for those like six weeks or so that transitioning from that to like, okay, restrictions are lifted <laughs> um, has been interesting for me because I want to know, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. I want to know why, like, I want to know why and or what's happening in the body that like now, now I can, and how do I do that gradually so that I really encourage, you know, the most movement that I can, but I'm getting stuck in my head a little bit too much about it all. It's a really good question, actually, and um, I'm, I'm compiling a list of questions for the next time I speak to Joel Wells, um, mm -hmm. who's so excited to do another talk with us um, and answer some more questions. He's just wonderful to speak to. Um, so I will I'll add that to the list of questions to how mm -hmm. to transition from restrictions to no restrictions, trying to work out how to do that both mentally and physically um because you're right you know you want to stick to all of the rules and restrictions because you know they're in there for a reason um yeah. but yeah it is quite difficult and you know we can relate this to covid as well right so you know we've all been told to stay away from people and no physical contact and wearing masks and gloves and everything that we're doing and then to go from all of those restrictions to then suddenly there will be a day where they'll turn around and say you don't have to do any of this anymore but it does feel strange, doesn't it, to think, well, okay, I can actually hug somebody again, or I can actually, you know, shake somebody's hand when I meet them for the first time. And going from those, well, actually, but is it still okay? Because are we going to be then potentially still spreading this virus in some way, even though they've told us it's safe? So, yeah, 
I don't, I don't know how you feel about that comparison, but I feel like it's on a kind of similar level, but just with obviously completely different circumstances. Yeah, and I think that's somewhere in healthcare that we oftentimes miss the mark at. And I see this within nutrition care too. So there's nutrition recommendations for folks without that ex explanation of this is why. This is why these recommendations are there. This is what happens in your body. Like this is what happens in your microbiome. And this is what happens with your blood sugars. And this is what happens with inflammation. And, and really explaining and empowering patients to know how their body works. And so going through this process too, I didn't really feel that empowered in terms of how, and it was the fellow actually that came up after my surgery. I actually didn't see my surgeon after my surgery in the hospital. I saw the fellow that apparently did the surgery, um, but just what actually is going on in there. And like, I think it would have been really helpful to see, I don't know if it's a diagram or if it's like a simulation of like, this is actually how healing then happens. And how can you, as a patient, like when you do these stretches, this is actually how it heals. Or like when you're like massaging the scar tissue, this is actually what happens in there. And I feel like when we, when we know why we should do something, then it puts those, it gels it within our brain in terms of doing it and then having more benefit from it because we actually can feel and associate like, like mentally that what's actually happening there. So that's been a big piece that Janine and I talk about in terms of even, um, even that emotionally and mentally associating your new parts is a thing that we've become really interested in talking about, like how to accept those new parts as your body, because it's just like you have the surgery and then it's like, okay, there you go. <laughs> there you go. And then like, here's these restrictions and you're not really told why you have those restrictions a little bit like you're worried about the the joint kind of popping out of place uh was basically the explanation that i was given um but then for i'm like okay so we're not worried about that anymore <laughs> is it because have the muscles strengthened is it because the bone like, like it's cemented into the bone now like can you explain to me a little bit more because i just need a bit more like i just need more information so um in order to really heal my body as much as possible and i don't know if that's because I'm younger in terms of um, wanting to know like, okay, like I do want to get back to running. How can I support my body to get to that place? Like what's my path in terms of supporting this body, right? Like, is there anything that I need to think of or, and I know that I'm in my head, but I think that I'm in my head because of a lack of information. Um, so I think it could be really helpful to have more physiology around field. I would love to see some like physiology classes around like replacements and, um, and then like how even like things like weights and things like, is that beneficial? Those are still lots of questions that I have in my, in my head around it too. That's brilliant. And I, I love how inquisitive you are about it. And I, I also think that when people are hearing this, please feel free, free to write down questions, right? From these podcasts that, you know, of things that come up that people have said that you can think, do you know what, even if I don't understand necessarily what, I'm asking or you know what I want from that even just to have that thought down on a piece of paper to think about how you feel about it what questions might stem from it because if you do have like a goal like you said you know you want to be able to run again you know you've done the trail running and the, and the hiking and you want to be able to go out and do all those things again if you don't ask then they are not automatically going to know that they're the things that you want so going in there with a list of questions or for your follow-up at least um you know pre-op questions post-op questions and just being really specific about what you what you want because 
you know, they are hard pushed for time, the consultants, and, you know, they will, if you don't actively give them those questions, they're going to bring your appointment to an end because there's going to be so many other people that they need to see. But if you've got questions and you need answers and that's going to be useful for you, they are going, well, hopefully, I can't speak for everybody, but, you know, you would hope that the majority of them are going to want to help give you that information and reassure you. Um, so please don't feel like you're wasting their time with questions that might seem menial or silly to you. They're never silly because they are making a huge impact on your life. If you don't have that information, you don't feel confident in yourself to do the things that would probably be really useful and helpful to get you to where you want to be. So thank you for talking about that. I really appreciate that because I think that can make a big difference to a lot of people um, going forward. So please have the confidence to ask those questions. It's important. Um, I think a part of it, oh, sorry, sorry. No, I think a part of it was that I wasn't sure what to ask. Like, I wasn't sure, um, like, how much information I would have post-op, right? Um, so I think the more research that you can do ahead of time in terms of, like, podcasts like yours and, like, reaching out. And even I wish that I would have done some more physio beforehand because I feel like that would have, I did a bit of prehab, but only in, like, the few months before. Um, and so I wish that I would have reached out to a physio before because I think a physio could have helped me, especially a physio who has experience um, and could have helped me in terms of asking those questions and knowing kind of what to expect. Um, so I definitely recommend seeing a physio that um, such as yourself that and listening to things like this um, to just gear yourself up for, for those questions to ask because I think that part of it was that I just wasn't sure. I wasn't sure until I was in that moment um, of of like, why am I having some resistance around, you know, why should I be doing these activities, these like recovery activities? I'm like, oh, I think it's because I don't know what it's doing for me. And I don't know like the mechanisms, um, but I, I geek out on physiology. So that's part of it too, <laughs> is that like <laughs> wanting to know the mechanisms. Yeah. So I did want to ask you a little bit about that as well, because obviously you are, you know, in the healthcare profession, you know, you're a, you're a diet dietitian, did you say you are? Um, so, you know, you have this kind of thought process around, you know, not just the physical, but the, the mental side of everything that we're going through, the emotional health, physical health, mental health. Um, in your profession, do you feel like that has helped you through this process um, in terms of like un, you know, looking for those questions and answers? Um, do you feel like there's any way that it's maybe hindered you in terms of sort of again knowing kind of how much there is to know but maybe sort of information overload with that kind of questions going on in your mind how did you feel that your profession has influenced your recovery yeah I think it's a bit of both to be honest um so I work in supportive cancer care as my my primary role um and within that work we really delve into looking at cancer in a very holistic way so looking at the psychosocial spiritual emotional um physical aspects of cancer and so that's like my, my practice and my patient care strategy. And then going into the orthopedics realm, um, I didn't feel like that was necessarily there um, for me. And so it was a different world in terms of the approach. It was, it felt very mechanical um, and which I'm grateful for because it's a very mechanical surgery. Um, and I think because of my current kind of healthcare platform that I practice within, I delve pretty deep. So then I think almost to a hindrance and probably to a hindrance of getting stuck in my own head of wanting to have those same resources for 
this type of surgery, of looking at it from all angles, because I've seen how supportive that can be in other realms of health. Um, and here in BC, we know like orthopedics is very like male dominated as well. Like it's, um, and in my experiences, it's been just very like cut and dry and just very like, okay, yeah, we're going to do it this. And like, yeah, you're ready. Okay. Yeah. We'll schedule you in and here you go. And there was a bit of support with the OASIS program here, the osteoarthritis group, but it was still like quite basic. So I think I was just wanting more because that's just the field that I work in. And I've just seen how beneficial it can be if we support patients with, with all aspects of their health when they're going through a big transition health-wise in their lives. Um, so when I went back to work, I'm like kind of functioning in that capacity as a health professional, and then also wanting that same thing for myself in terms of my recovery. Um, and for me, part of that is just like learning more about what's happening in the body, because that just takes away a lot of fear. I've seen that happen with patients is if there's a better understanding of how the body's working and what's happening with a diagnosis, then a lot of that fear goes away, right? Because some, a lot of those questions and getting stuck in your head about those questions can be calmed because you're myth busting and you're saying like, oh, actually this is what's happening in your body. And this is how you can either support that or, you know, this, these are ways that you can support that process in your body. So I think not knowing enough about, um, about orthopedics and about this surgery in particular, I know I had it, I know it <laughs> happened, um, but not knowing actually was, so it's, it's been a bit, a bit of both. And part of that I think is something that I, I now want to help in terms of increasing awareness or finding out more myself and trying to figure out how we can empower patients to know more about what's going in their body because what's going on in their body. I just think that can only lead to better ways of us supporting our own health and recovery is by knowing, and I get, again, I know I get stuck in my head, but, but knowing more rather than always relying on outside professionals as well. Um, knowing more within our own selves, I think can be really helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. And while we're talking about, you know, what's going on inside our body, I wondered um, whether you might have any tips for people that are going through upcoming surgeries or they're going through a lot of healing in terms of, you know, what we perhaps should be putting in our body and what ways that, you know, advice from a dietitian on how we can help um, with our healing and our recovery through what we're putting into our bodies. So do you have any kind of tips that you might be happy to share? Yeah, so that was definitely a piece that I had to navigate post-surgery because we all know there's like some digestive things that happen after we've had a surgery. Sometimes it slows down or speeds up. Um, so trying to work either with reaching out for some support in terms of that, um, but looking at getting in some good fiber ahead of time, getting your, your whole digestive system working pretty consistently, <clears throat> excuse me, beforehand. And then um, looking at some of those anti-inflammatory foods can be also really helpful. So that's getting in some whole grains and some fiber and some, some antioxidants through, through foods. Um, I did a little bit of a supplement regimen before surgery just to boost my immune system a little bit, uh, but not, not anything major. So I would reach out if anybody has questions, I'm always happy to answer questions about that too. Um, and just kind of boosting your system before surgery and making it nice and robust. Um, when we go through surgery, we need a little bit more protein in our, in our, um, foods and in our system just for those building blocks for healing and for your immune system. So boosting up our protein a little bit. So that doesn't mean we need to like take in a bunch of protein powders. It just means uh, 
incorporating a little bit more of our chosen chosen proteins that we have in it in our diet. And then the other piece is the mindfulness piece around um, acknowledging that it's a it's a time that we may need some comfort and that um, post surgery we might want to have some of those comforting foods that we had growing up or that could be really supportive to have those around um, and also some breathing techniques which I have a lot of folks that say like Aaron, why do you talk to me about stress and sleep and breathing and because they're so intertwined with healing um, and with our immune system and also with our digestive system which is intricately tied with our mental health so I would suggest lots of those strategies ahead of time whether it's like a breathing app or a meditation app, if that's new to you in terms of breath work and meditation, it can be so supportive in the body's healing, resting when you need to rest, um, moving when you when your body feels like it needs to move and um, trying to get into that intuition of what your body needs during healing time, I think is really, really important. We've just, I think when you've lived in a, in a body that's been in pain for quite some time, we can get, I think, quite disassociated from our body and what it needs. Um, so in healing time, that's a really good time to start practicing um, what, what your body really needs in those kind of more intensive moments, perhaps, um, and listening to what happens when you do take a bigger, deeper breath or what happens when you do, you know, perhaps it doesn't have to be meditation. It could just be some quiet time for yourself or self-reflection or journaling it can also be super powerful and helpful, I think, post-surgery, um, just to work through those feelings and, and those questions that might come up around your own healing. So looking at it from like a whole body, whole wellness sense too. Absolutely. I, th I think the thing that you've just said that resonates with me the most, I mean, there's so many useful tips in there to, to take home, but the thing is that we've been literally trying to ignore our pain for <laughs> however many years and decades of our life, that it's, it's easy to see how it can be very difficult to understand and recognize what our body needs when we have been ignoring it for so long. I think that's really powerful. So thank you so much for that. I know it's going to sit with me for, for the rest of this week. And I know it's going to bring up some really thought provoking questions. Okay. Um, okay. So, I mean, I think that's most of the questions that I wanted to ask for you today so I really really appreciate your time and you telling your story and like I said for all of those super useful tips um, and like I said if you're happy to take questions from people um, and people want to ask you those where can they find you? Yes please please so please um, I do have a website it's Erin Roman RD so E-R-I-N-R-O-M-A-N-R-D dot C-A or you can email me at the same Erin Roman RD uh, at gmail.com so please reach out if you have any questions at all I'd love to hear from you if you're having the same surgery um, yeah I, I can understand how um, even when I looked out for that hashtag of bilateral hip replacement there was actually only a few that had both done at the same time so I know that it's really hard to find others that have had both done if that's coming up for you so please reach out um, please connect with someone if it's not me I can connect you perhaps with someone else um, and just have that dialogue and ask those questions. It can be a little bit scary, I think, to connect with others about it because it is a big surgery, but it was so helpful for me to just have a place to just say, hi, I don't really even know what to ask, but like, how are you? And like, what brought you to this place? And then that really gets a conversation going. Um, and it's just, it can be lifelong support, really. It's so great. 
Well, thank you so, so much again. And uh, I know we'll keep in touch um, after this. So thank you so much again for your time and we will speak soon. Cheers, Erin. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another inspiring and incredible guest. See you soon.